I wonder how you feel about the church. Do you love the church? Do you love the idea of the church? Do you love the people who make up the church? Do you have a a sense of union and communion with them? Or do you feel somewhat distant and perhaps devoid of unity with them? Does that oft-quoted ditty about the church jump into your mind and summarize how you feel? It goes like this. To live above with the saints we love, ah, that is the purest glory. To live below with the saints we know, ah, that is another story. Do you feel that way? Uh, we find that somewhat humorous. We, we laugh because there's kind of a kernel of truth to it, right? God's people are not always easy to live with. And yet, live with them we must. Uh, we must because God commanded it. We must because God commends it. And deep down, we know that there is actually truth and goodness and beauty radiating from the people of God when they are united. So that we may better know how to live in love and in unity with the people of God this morning, we turn to study Psalm 133, a psalm delighting in the unity of God's people. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, turn in your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word to Psalm 133. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 519. And when you arrive there, you'll notice... An inscription at the top, an inscription that says, a song of ascents. This is one of the 15 songs that Israelite pilgrims would sing as they made their way up to one of the three annual feasts. We've been thinking about this, uh, this section of the Psalter as kind of ancient Israelite road trip music. Uh, these psalms were composed at different times in Israel's history, but they were probably eventually compiled as a finished set, a complete set, sometime after the Babylonian captivity. These songs, they're useful to us because like the ancient Israelite pilgrims, we too are headed somewhere. The ancient pilgrims were headed up to Jerusalem for worship and we are headed up to heaven, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, where we will see our God face to face. And as we'll learn from Psalm 133, we're headed to heaven together where we will dwell forever. In these songs, we learn how to be holy, happy, heavenly minded people as we go on our journey. You'll notice that our psalm there in the scripture also has an author. The scripture says, of David. Let's go ahead and read the psalm. And then I want to give you a little bit of historical background concerning this psalm. Follow along as I read now Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The, the theme of this psalm is not hard to spot, is it? It's unity. It's focused on unity, especially the unity of God's people. And the psalm opens with a declaration. It gives two illustrations and closes with a commendation, all which are centered on unity. And the main idea that this psalm expresses is this. Unity is good and glorious. Unity under God's king is especially good and glorious. Now, we don't know for certain when exactly David wrote this psalm. But it seems very likely that it was written after the kingdom of Israel was finally consolidated under David 
in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So keeping one finger here in Psalm 133, if you can, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there, uh, you can find it on page 257. I want you to see for yourself what I think is likely the historical setting of this psalm and how it gives texture to the unity that's pictured in our text. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind you kind of the lead up to this chapter of 2 Samuel 7. God, he has moved his people, Israel, into the land of Canaan. A kingdom has been established under Saul. Saul was the people's choice for king, but he wasn't God's choice. God's choice was David. And so you'll remember that David, he was crowned as king in waiting by Samuel. Shortly after that, David was chased into the wilderness where he had to hide from Saul. After Saul's death, David was anointed king of Judah, which was kind of the southern territory of Israel. But one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, was made king over the northern portion of Israel in, in 2 Samuel chapter 2. So a civil war basically ensues for the next two years. In other words, brothers were not dwelling in unity. And finally, after the death of Ishbosheth, Saul's son in 2 Samuel 4, the kingdom is consolidated under David in 2 Samuel 5. So the brothers begin dwelling in unity. This is what we read. Read 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Well, there's just a couple of things that we need to note from this passage before we turn back to Psalm 133. First, note all the uses of the word all in the text. All the tribes of Israel came to David. You see that in verse 1. All the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron. At Hebron in verse 3. And at Jerusalem, he, David, reigned over all Israel and Judah. You see that in verse 5. Unity is clearly a theme in this text as well. Note also what was said by the tribes there in verse 1. Do you see their, their phrase? Behold, we are your bone and flesh. This is a covenant oath formula actually strewn throughout the Bible which expresses unity and solidarity. In fact, it reaches all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the marriage of Adam and Eve. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, Adam declared, this is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Adam was committing to care for the wife, to be united with the wife that God had given as his own body. He was promising to be one with her. So when these tribes declare to David, behold, we are your flesh and bone. They are promising to come under his headship and his rule as king of a single nation. And after the recent unpleasantness of their civil war, we can see how David might be so relieved and thankful that God brought unity to the brothers of Israel. They said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. And we have Psalm 133, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let's go ahead and turn back to Psalm 133 now. It's on page 519 of the Bible's provided, in case you lost your place. My sense is that this psalm is written in response to this gracious gift from God, that He's given unity to this nation. 
Let's consider again the, the glory and the goodness of unity again from our song. Let me read it again. It's short, so we can do that. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Again, this psalm, it opens with a declaration. It gives two illustrations and concludes with a commendation, all of which reveal that unity is good and glorious. While the psalm has three sections, I think it might be more profitable for us to actually draw out the lessons that this psalm gives in those three sections. How it teaches us about the goodness of unity. Here's lesson number one. Unity is observable. Our psalm begins with an exclamation and declaration. David exclaims, Behold! And this is a word that invites us to look, to see, to marvel at the unity of the people of God. Unity under God's king is observable. It's something to marvel at and to rejoice in. We must recognize that unity is something that God creates and cultivates, which is why it's worth beholding. Unity among God's people, when you think about it, is kind of like a giant billboard which exclaims that God is present and pouring out His blessings. And by God's grace, I, I agree with what our brother Neo said earlier, that we as a church family have experienced this kind of unity. Both unity and disunity are perceptible and observable. You would be hard-pressed to find something more disastrous to the winsome witness of the church than division. Even division just between two persons in a local church. People can tell when a church is divided. Uh, there's an atmosphere of distrust. It's thick in the air, and it makes it difficult to move out the church body and form relationships as everyone's kind of on edge. I, I, don't, I don't know what I want to do. I don't want to say here in this situation. People can tell when a church is divided. But people can also tell when a church is united in love. Our brother Neil referred to John chapter 13, verse 35 earlier, and it was exactly right to do so. Jesus proclaims and exclaims that love is seen. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Love is perceptible. It's glorious to behold. Others will know of our love for Christ in part as they behold our unity and love for one another. Christian, so I have a question for you. Can others behold your unity with the people of God? Do others know that you're united with the people of God? Are you united with the people of God? Can, be, can people behold the fact that you're a member of a Christian church? Are you a member of a Christian church? Do others know that about you? Do others know that, yes, I'm with those people. I'm with the people of Arlington Baptist Church. Yes, those saints at Arlington Baptist are also sinners. They have their flaws. Their leaders are fallen and faulty but they are my brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I'm with them. As many of you know, in our membership course, we make a, a brief case, actually, for membership itself. We try to answer the question, why should you join a local church? Why should you unite with a local church in membership? And the short answer is, because it tells the truth about who you are in Jesus Christ. That's why you should join a local church, because it tells the truth about who you are in Christ. For the church... The Bible uses the images of a building and a body, a household, and a flock. Christians are bricks in the building, uh, necessarily united to other bricks. Christians are members of a body, as we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're like an arm that's attached to the body, and arms are meant to be attached to bodies. 
or like an eye or a nose or a hand, all necessarily united to a body. Uh, we're children in the household of God, gathered around God's table, like we'll demonstrate later. But that necessitates being together. We're all sheep in a flock, being led by the good shepherd and under his shepherd's pastors. But in order for us to be a flock, we have to be together, united as one, moving in the same direction. If unity is a, beside, a sight to behold, can others behold your unity with God's people? Christian, live a life in which others exclaim, behold, you are united to the people of God. Your life is centered around their life together corporately. Live a life where unity with God's people is observable to others. After David offers an exclamation that unity is observable, he makes a declaration. Unity is also enjoyable. That's the second lesson from our text. Unity is enjoyable. Look at verse 1 again. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Notice those words, good and pleasant. In those words, the idea is that unity is excellent and enjoyable. Uh, the word good is the same word that occurs repeatedly in Genesis chapter 1. When God creates and declares his creation as good. And when he, uh, when he reflects upon the creation of man and woman in his image, he says, behold, it is very good. In other words, this, uh, this idea of goodness can have connotations of being beneficial and favorable and excellent and even right. In other words, the goodness of unity can have a moral quality to it. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Unity is not only God-given, but it is actually an expression of God as the triune Godhead. We see the goodness of unity in God Himself. When we think of the Trinity, we're thinking of the triunity of the three persons of the Godhead. As the old catechisms remind us, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, same in essence and equal in power and glory. Our triune God is united in plan, and purpose, and providence. And while the three persons of the triune Godhead exercise distinct offices in creation and redemption, they exercise those offices in perfect unity and harmony. As we see our triune God will and work and speak His word, we can't help but see the goodness of unity displayed in Him. And just as there is a goodness to the unity among the persons of the Godhead, so there is a goodness to the unity among the people of God. When the people of God agree, when they are united in mind and heart, as Paul says in Philippians, when they're united in discernment, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when they're united in devotion and dedication to seeing the gospel of Jesus advance, that is good and right. If unity in the triune Godhead is good, and if such unity is reflected among brothers, it's not only excellent and ethically good, but it is experientially joyful and enjoyable. Unity was and is first enjoyed among the three persons of the Godhead. So in John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus announces that the Father has loved Him as the Son from before the foundation of the world. And not only did the Father love the Son, but the Son also loved the Father. They enjoyed their relationship with one another. So Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 31, says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of love. After all, it's that fruit that He bears within the people of God. He bears the fruit of love in God's people. It's because He is filled with love for the most lovely persons in all of the universe, the Father, 
and the Son. Many of you know the pleasantness of unity among the people of God in your own life and your own experience. You found it to be enjoyable. Some here have experienced the blessing of being surrounded by a congregation, united in love when you were sick, or when you welcomed a newborn into your home, or when you were burdened by depression, or when you were wayward in sin. You experienced the pleasantness of unity as different members cared for you and loved you as a church family. They showed you love in, in different ways, uh, meals and text messages with scripture, prayer, practical physical help, and more. Many have observed that some things are good and that other things are pleasant, but rarely is something both good and pleasant. Such is the case with unity. It's excellent and enjoyable. And part of what makes unity excellent and enjoyable, a, a double blessing of pleasure and profit, is that it's not the same thing as uniformity. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Take, for example, our model of the Trinity. The goodness of unity, as we consider it in the triune Godhead, is not found in uniformity, right? There are three different and distinct persons of the Godhead. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. We do not collapse the persons of the triune Godhead into one another so that we can no longer tell them apart. The Scripture never does that. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Instead, unity, especially unity in the triune Godhead, is differing persons dwelling in harmony. Unity is differing persons expressing their personhood in power for the benefit of creation and for the blessing of redemption. While the love of God is singular, such love has a fatherly expression, a saving sympathy from the Son, and a faithful joy and a fruitful joy from the Spirit. And when we are loved by a united church of God, we experience love differently from each of her members, precisely because each of her members are different. Right? The lawyers might just love us a little bit differently than the software engineers. The extroverts might just love us a little bit differently than the introverts. The bookworms might just love us a little bit differently than the athletically inclined. The bakers might just love us differently than the dishwashers. And yet all of these different expressions of love are pleasant and good and necessary for our own growth in love and unity among God's people. Beloved, when you look around at the people of God, your fellow members, you are seeing different ways that God means to love you and show his love to you, for you to enjoy his love. And we should rejoice that love from our brothers and sisters is not uniform, but varied. That's part of what makes unity excellent and enjoyable and fresh in a certain experience. We experience new ways to be loved by our fellow members. And this leads us to the next lesson of our song. After an exclamation and declaration, we have an explication through illustrations, right? Unity is togetherness. Well, this third lesson of our psalm, unity is togetherness. Let me point it out to you back again in verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Two key words I want you to see here are brothers and dwell. Unity involves a people and a place and the people in the same place. The people that our psalm has in mind here are the brothers of Israel. And while David would certainly agree that it's also a blessing that the sisters of Israel dwell in unity, 
The reality is that men were the kind of representative heads of the households in the nation of Israel. Uh, where they went, their households went. Women and children were comprehended in their household head. That is to say that it is good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity is also to say that it's good and pleasant when the whole nation dwells in unity. And this is quite striking when you think of kind of brothers in Israel's history. Just think of the brothers for a moment. The first brothers, Cain and Abel, did not dwell in unity, right? Cain killed Abel. Think of Ishmael and Isaac. They did not dwell in unity. Ishmael disgraced Isaac. Jacob and Esau did not dwell in unity. Jacob swindled Esau. Joseph and his brothers did not dwell in unity. Joseph was sold into slavery. David, the author of our song, did not quite dwell in unity with his brothers. When David turned up on the battlefield, his brothers were there facing Goliath, and he heard him shouting down the armies of Israel. David said, something must be done. And 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28 tells us that David's brothers, their anger was kindled against him during David's reign. His sons did not dwell in unity. Absalom murdered Amnon. And then David's son, Adonijah, attempted to steal the kingdom from his son, Solomon. These brothers, the brothers of Israel, have a terrible history of living together and of actually not dwelling in unity. And we know kind of why, don't we? Brothers, fellow family members, are some of the most difficult people to dwell with in unity. Now, the brothers in Psalm 133, as I said, kind of like, likely has a larger group of people in mind, those who make up the nation. And we know that in every nation, unity is really difficult to achieve. We need not look very far in the nation in which we all currently dwell. We see that unity is scarce. Sadly, unity is sometimes scarce in a church too. Why is that so? Why was there all that conflict among the brothers of Israel? Why was there conflict in Israel? Why is there conflict in our nation today? Why is there conflict in our households, and sometimes in our churches? Well, it's because sinners are there and present. Precisely because the brothers and a family and a nation and a denomination or a church are sinners. We all want to be king of everything. And the Bible is honest with us about the condition of our hearts. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's what happened with Cain and Abel, right? Or consider what James says in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why is there a lack of unity? Because there's selfishness and self-centeredness. We exalt ourselves as king overall. We want to be priority number one. We want to look out for ourselves. We want to be like Diotrephes, who loved to be first. These are the kinds of people that David is saying are dwelling together in unity. Sinners, people like you and me. And part of how Psalm 133 confronts each one of us is that it reminds us that if we don't have unity with others, with our brothers, our sin and our sinful desires might be part of the problem. We might be those who are forming factions in the church like those in Corinth had done. We might be unreasonable like Yodia and Syntyche were in the church in Philippi. Rhett Dodson, one pastor, he said, self-centeredness 
This self-centeredness keeps us from striving harder to achieve unity. We can't see the beauty of unity because we can't get our eyes off ourselves and our agendas. The last time you were in a conflict with someone, were you more interested in promoting the joy of unity that God presents here or in justifying yourself? Those are good questions to ask. When and where we sense separation and disunity among the brethren or in our marriages or in our homes, we might be wise to suspect ourselves first. Are we holding on to principle or personal preference? Are we holding on to placing ourselves first or considering others more important than ourselves? We would do well to remember that according to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, among the seven things that the Lord hates, the final one in the list, the one to kind of top it all off, what the Lord hates is one who sows discord among brothers. And still, what this psalm is teaching us is that unity is possible. Unity is possible among brethren who are sinners. Those who are prone to serve themselves and their desires are able to gather together and dwell together in the same place. Note carefully those words, dwell in unity, at the end of verse 1. The Hebrew word has connotations of sitting down, settling down, and remaining together. Not just that, but this togetherness actually speaks of a lengthy period of time. David is speaking of a unity that lasts. These pilgrim brothers, when they arrive there in Jerusalem for the feast, are about to be together. They're about to sit down at a table and feast and have fellowship with one another. They're going to share life together and to do so in the same place. And this unity and togetherness was beautifully pictured in the life of the early church, wasn't it? Think of the book of Acts, how it opened, kind of in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, you read, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Two verses later, Acts chapter 2, verse 46, we hear this, And day by day, that unity that goes on, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is the kind of unity that we want to long for and labor for here at Arlington Baptist. That means that we're going to have to stick it out with one another. It means that we're going to have to stay when the going gets tough. And that we'll have to work for unity. Work to maintain our unity and togetherness. That's what will renew in our church's covenant when we partake of the Lord's Supper later today. And though God creates and cultivates unity through Jesus Christ, His people are actually commanded, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, to maintain it. That maintenance takes maintenance, it takes work. Maybe you treat the church family like a family reunion, where you share a weekend with your extended family. Uh, you know that you're going to have to be together with your crazy uncle. And since it's just a weekend, you can put up with him and you can dwell in unity for a short period of time. But that's not the kind of unity that David has in mind. He has in mind a unity that lasts, a togetherness that goes on. So yeah, you're going to have to come here and be with your crazy uncle for a long time. That's the idea that David wants to communicate. We need a togetherness, not just for a couple of hours of one day of the week, but a togetherness that goes on throughout the week. And we, we can't expect others to create those contexts of togetherness for us. We have to create them and cultivate them ourselves. As I've often said, others can't live the Christian life for you. Others can't create community for you. 
No, you have to give yourself to following Jesus. And one of the ways that you're called to follow him is to find ways to dwell in unity with his people, to be together with them, to go to those places where they are and to create places where they can come and gather together as well. And that might mean that you are the creator and cultivator of a context of togetherness because that's what unity is. Unity is togetherness. The fourth lesson that our psalm teaches is this. Unity is diffusive. Now, I recognize that diffusive is not a commonly used word today, uh, but diffusive simply means to pour out and spread as a fluid. Uh, That's what happens in that first illustration, right? The oil being poured down on the head of Aaron. He's the high priest of Israel. It's running down on his head, onto his beard, even onto the collar of his priestly robes. I imagine that's exactly how you think of unity in the life of Arlington Baptist Church. So when, when somebody asks you, what's unity like there? You said, it's just like that oil running down on Aaron's head, right? This is a strange image to us at first. But it's, it's meant to explain that it's diffusive, that it's spreading out all over the place. That's what happened when Aaron took the office as high priest. We read about it in his anointing there in Exodus 29 and 30. And everyone watching this kind of anointing of Aaron would have undoubtedly remembered what it looked like. I mean, when, when water comes down or oil, if that's ever happened to you on your face, it, it's, it's a little, um, you know, it, it messes with you just a little bit. And I imagine that's happening with Aaron. He's squinting his eyes. People are seeing him taking this in, watching it run down. It was a smell to behold. It was a sight to behold. Uh, the, um, the oil had a pleasant smell. It included cinnamon uh, and other sweet ingredients. And it went everywhere on Aaron. And through this This illustration, David is saying that unity spreads. In fact, uh, that's what he's saying through the second image as well. So if you look at verse 3, we're given this second image. that It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, Hermon, Mount Hermon, was and is the highest mountain in the region. Uh, It uh, it was known for heavy precipitation. I think it's one of the only mountains in the region that actually is snow-capped from time to time. Uh, But here's the thing. Mount Hermon is actually in the north of Israel. And the mountains of Zion are in the south of Israel. Uh, Unity spreads. It moves from uh, Hermon all the way down to Zion. It's diffusive. It spreads throughout the whole nation. That's the the picture that David is giving. It's the second image we see. And as you think about the idea of dew and precipitation, we also see unity is refreshing too, isn't it? Dew and moisture encourage vitality and life. Christian, did you know that your unity can be contagious? You can help spread unity. Uh, When you politely shut down a conversation of gossip in order to protect a brother or sister's reputation, you're teaching other Christians to do the same when they're faced with similar situations. And you're not allowing to divide themselves off as different and better and more important than another Christian in your church family. Right? That's cultivating and spreading unity. You're keeping those bonds together. Hold on, hold on. We can't talk about our brother or sister that way. I know that we, we, we love them. We want to protect their reputation. You're, you're keeping the congregation bound together. You're maintaining that unity. Uh, it, when you find common ground in agreement in a kind of challenging conversation on secondary issues, you're helping to cultivate and spread unity among the church family. I think we agree, disagree here. It's a secondary matter. But you know, one point of this conversation, which we agree, is X. You're cultivating unity, helping to maintain that. To be clear, this does not mean that we sacrifice the truth for the sake of unity. I think it was Luther who said, if you have to choose between uh, truth and unity, hang unity and go with the truth. It's a very Protestant streak in Martin Luther. 
But there's some truth to that, right? We, we have to be united in the truth. If we're united at all, uh, we have to be united. So we can't abandon truth for the sake of unity. It's only unity in the truth that lasts and spreads. So Christians, here's something you may not realize. Right? You actually have been anointed as a priest among the people of God. We've thought about this actually a number of times in this series in the Songs of Ascent. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, uh, Peter teaches us that we are chosen and precious in God's sight to be a holy priesthood, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, Christian, you've been anointed with the Spirit. And in the course of your regeneration, being made alive in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit that binds you to Jesus is the same Spirit who binds you to Jesus' people. You can't have Jesus without His people. If you're united to Christ the head, you're united to His body. He's the same Spirit who will enable you to dwell in unity with Jesus' people and to spread unity among God's people. When you spread unity among God's people, you're giving something that our poor, parched souls are often longing for, right? In a, in a world of division and hostility and strife, when you cultivate and spread unity, uh, you're bringing refreshment and reconciliation. In doing so, you're obeying the command of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, where he writes, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Unity is diffusive. It spreads. It brings refreshment to our souls. And children, children and young people, let me say a word to you here. Let me encourage you in this truth. Unity spreads. You can bring peace to your home. You can be one who encourages peace in your home. In, instead of quarreling over plastic or a place on the couch or a seat in the car or whatever it might be, priority to go first in line, whatever it might be, remember that the person in front of you, the person that you're quarreling with, is a person made in the image of God, far more important than plastic or place or putting yourself first. You can consider them more important than yourself, just like Jesus did for us. Can you live in peace and pursue unity in your home? You can with God's help. So ask God for the grace to be one who spreads unity all throughout your home. These illustrations teach us the lesson that unity is diffusive. But they also teach us another lesson too. They teach us that unity is from above. That's the next lesson. Unity is from above. In verse 2, did you notice the double use of the, that phrase, running down? Verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. The same Hebrew word for running down actually occurs in verse 3 as well. Now, verse 3 says, it was like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Those two words, which falls, actually represent the same Hebrew word for running down. Uh, in verse 2. So three times actually in this psalm, David says the blessing of unity is running down upon the people of God. Uh, since he said it three times, he must have wanted us to take notice of it. Now imagine you're on this road trip with ancient Israelites and you're singing uh, the ancient road trip music and you're singing this psalm uh, about the oil and the dew running down, running down as you're going up. Right? Well, that's an interesting image to think about. You are headed up, and the blessings of God are coming down. It's wonderful to think of for the people of Israel. 
You're going up to Jerusalem, and God is sending his blessing down. The precious oil comes from above. The dew of Hermon comes from above. And of course, toward the end of verse 3, we're reminded that the Lord above is the ultimate source of blessing. He's the one who commands the blessing. Beloved, let us always remember this. When we are longing for unity in our families, in this nation, in our denomination, among the people of God, let us always look to God. Let us look to the one who reigns above. Let us look to the king who came from above to bring unity to his people below. This past week, it's been good for me to pray uh, for the Lord to give unity to his people. Uh, he's given it to our church family. We should keep praying that you continue to give it to our church family. Uh, throughout the week, I had conversations with a number of Christians. And when I was talking with one father, uh, he, he was sharing with me how his children are compacted into a small home. And that's been difficult for his family. Unity and harmony were not always easy. And so I urged him to memorize and pray Psalm 133. I told him to pray for God to give the brothers dwelling in his home unity. And no, it's not anyone here this morning. So you don't need to be looking around wondering who it is. Uh, it's, you know, in fact, we probably all need it to be so in our, each of our homes, in each of our contexts. My, my guess is that Psalm 133 is good for us to pray and memorize at different times, even, even daily. So pray for God to give our homes, this nation, our denomination, and our church unity. And too often, our, our first attempts are bathed, our first attempts at unity are kind of bathed in our power, rather than in prayer, and in seeking unity from the source of unity, from above, from God Himself. And so when Jesus longed for unity among His people, do you remember what He did? He prayed. In John 17, Jesus prayed for our unity. He appealed to God the Father. In John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus prayed that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. If Jesus wanted unity, so should we. If there's a point in your life as a Christian where you're thinking, I don't really want to be with those people, that's a question or a time for self-examination. If Jesus wanted unity, so should we. If Jesus prayed for unity, so should we. In fact, Jesus died for our unity. He died to unite us to himself and to one another. And reality, and really, that unity is from above. Begs the question, are we united to the God above? If we are to have unity with the people of God on earth, we have to have unity with the God who is above in heaven. J.C. Ryle once observed that the true secret of unity of believers lies in the expression, one in us, referring to God the Father and God the Son. Christians can only be thoroughly one by being joined at the same time to the one Father and to the one Savior. Then they will be one with one another. Friend, are you one with God? And so one with His people. Did you know that you are not naturally united to God? By nature, we are all sinners in rebellion against God and separating ourselves from God, attempting to form our own kingdoms and our own rules. And like Saul, we are not the right king for God's kingdom. Jesus is the right king for God's kingdom. And the Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. That's what's due to our working in sin. And still the good news of the Bible is that though we have pushed God away, rejecting unity with Him, He has come to earth to reconcile us to Himself. He has done that in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has put on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life that we have not lived. And He died on the cross 
bearing the punishment for the sins due to all of those who would have returned from their sin and placed their faith in Him. Jesus died for our creating discord with God and fellow man. And three days after His death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And all those who turn from their sin and rebellion against God and unite themselves to His Son, Jesus Christ, will be received into glory. They will be received into life eternal. They will experience union with God and union with God's people and perfect unity in God's glorious place. Friend, I want to urge you today, like those northern tribes who came to David and said, we are your flesh and bone, we are giving ourselves to you to live under your rule and be united with you. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Give yourself up to Him and to His rule. Submit yourself to His life. He will rule your life far better than you ever could. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be united to Him as your King and Savior and Lord. And He will receive you with gladness and joy. And declare that it's a joy to dwell in unity with you. This is how we come into union with God above. And how union with the people of God flows out. Unity is from above. And unity is for eternity. This is the sixth and final lesson of our text. Unity is for eternity. I, I trust you see it in those words there in the last verse. For there the Lord Yahweh has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The words life forevermore I think show us that David is not merely thinking about the temporal blessings of unity in this life. I think he knew that the, the blessing of unity that he and the tribes of Israel were experienced was pointing to something far beyond that, something far greater to be yet achieved. As precious and as pleasant as that unity is, and as unity is in this life, David, I think, is thinking about union and union with God's people forevermore. But where is this union to be found? Where's the, the there that David speaks of in verse 3? Well, in Zion, of course. It's, it's true that temporally they were experiencing unity there in Jerusalem in Zion. But I think Zion is also pointing to the greater heavenly Zion, the heavenly new Jerusalem. Uh, David, I think, if he were thinking of Zion in merely an earthly sense, he could have just said here, not there. But David, like so many other Old Testament saints, knew that the earthly blessings that the people of God experienced were but types and shadows of the full realities that were yet to come. David knew that he and his sons after him were but a type of the final king, the Messiah and Savior, who was yet to come. Abraham knew that the promised land of Canaan was but a type and shadow of the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. The Old Testament saints, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. One chapter later, writing to New Testament Christians, the writer to the Hebrews says this, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. David and the people of Israel were going up to the earthly Zion, but they carried in their hearts the hope that one day they would be gathered to the heavenly Mount Zion, where they would know perfect unity and life forevermore. You, Christian, you should live here in preparation for there. So, like the ancient pilgrims 
like the ancient Israelite pilgrims, when you come here and gather with God's people for worship here, carry the hope in your heart of going there. When you come up here to worship with this congregation, carry the hope of your heart that you are going up there to worship with the people of God and that great congregation. They're going up. And the scriptures say here, Psalm 133, that there's going to be life forevermore. What, what, what does that mean? What's this life everlasting, life evermore, life eternal life? What are they speaking about when the scriptures use this language? There's going to be a life of the age to come, an age that has no end. Helpfully, Jesus gives us his own definition of life forevermore or eternal life. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So you see, eternal life, life forevermore, will consist of knowing God and Jesus. Knowing in the scriptures has connotations of relationship, right? Dwelling with someone. Believers will relate to God in perfect, wonderful love for all eternity. And God will relate to believers in perfect, wonderful love. And if this is so, then it's no surprise that we will enjoy perfect love and unity with God's people. Well, God will command His blessing there. We will echo His blessing with one of our own. For we will be blessed in God and blessing God. We will be those who fall down on our faces and cry in the words of Revelation 19.6, Hallelujah for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Life forevermore is life with God under life's King. And it's the very blessing that He commands. Matthew Henry put it like this. The blessing which God commands on those that dwell in love is life forevermore. That is the blessing of blessings. Nothing will stop that blessing. Beloved, think about this. Nothing will stop that blessing in glory. Not division. Not discord. Not even death. For there on that heavenly Mount Zion, sin can never enter in and death is known no more. Beloved, as we conclude and prepare our hearts to sing and sup at the table of the Lord in preparation for that eternal day when we will sing praises of our God on that heavenly Mount Zion and sup with Him at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us remember the blessed lessons of unity in this song. In our union with King Jesus, our unity is observable to the watching world. They can know who God is and what His love is like. Our unity is good and pleasant. It's enjoyable to live in peace with God's people and to see many drawn to God's Son. Our unity is characterized by togetherness. So beloved, while you live, live together with the people of God. Unity is diffusive. It spreads. So spread unity among God's people as God gives you grace. Work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is from above. So let us not take it for granted. Let us continue to plead and pray that God would continue to give us unity, especially in our church. Unity, it's for eternity. We will soon be united in heaven, so we might as well be united on earth. In the words of Mr. Spurgeon, let us love forevermore, and we shall live forevermore. Let's have union with our King for now and for eternity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask for more of this rare virtue of unity with your people. Not the love which comes and goes, but that which dwells. Father, we ask 
Uh, Not for a spirit which separates and divides and is schismatic, but that which dwells together. We ask for hearts that are not eager to debate and to find differences, but that which dwell together in unity. Father, we pray and ask for unity with Christ, a, a greater richness of our unity with Christ, and a greater richness of unity with one another. Father, would you give it? Would you bless it? Would you command it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.